Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, The Secret Horror Franchise Part 2. So to catch you up on what that means, we started this entire podcast by asking half a million horror fans online the question, what is your favorite horror movie franchise that isn't one of the big ones? So isn't Scream or Evil Dead or Elm Street or Friday the 13th? And we ended up getting tens of thousands of answers. But one franchise that never got mentioned, not once out of thousands and thousands of replies, was the Invisible Man series. So that was what the first podcast episode we ever did was about. But as one of the followers and supporters of this page pointed out, there was another franchise that did not make an appearance in the replies at all, even though the name of that franchise is probably more famous than the Invisible Man, at least Invisible Man as a franchise anyway. Now, just to put this in context for you, I mean, we got every answer you can think of because we got tens of thousands of answers, right? So it ranged from Leprechaun to Hellraiser to Final Destination to some really deep cuts. I mean, in just one comment alone, one of the followers of the page, Chastity Schneider said, subspecies, puppet master, demonic toys, sleepaway camp, reanimator, ginger dead man. Okay, I can go on and on and on. LOL was her answer. I mean, when you've got people saying things like the Hell Hell House LLC movies are fun and the Dead Space Animated films were pretty legit and a spirited discussion of the Wolf Cop franchise. You've covered most of the ground horror has to offer. Now, with that in mind, just imagine how mind blowing it was to comb through all of those comments and not see this horror franchise mentioned. Because when I say the name, it's super famous but apparently no one thinks about it as a franchise anymore, or it's just not something that easily comes to horror fans' minds when answering the question about their favorite horror franchise. So what is the franchise, you ask? Do you go out with friends? Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. That's right, it's Psycho. The Psycho franchise includes one of the greatest films ever made. Not greatest horror films ever made, just greatest film films ever made. It also includes three incredibly interesting sequels, one of the worst films ever made, I think, and a truly, truly great, and I think at this point, underrated TV series. But most importantly, the Psycho franchise houses one of if not the greatest extended acting performance in the history of horror cinema. I'm not kidding. Just to contextualize this, let's compare Anthony Perkins' performance as Norman Bates across four films to Anthony Hopkins' performances as Hannibal Lecter and Robert Englund's performances as Freddy Krueger. Although there was never any chance of topping the original Psycho, Anthony Perkins made Norman Bates more and more interesting over time. We'll talk about that in this episode. But Norman became an almost <laughs> Shakespearean figure in the sequels, equally frightening, sympathetic, nuanced, and doomed. 
Anthony Hopkins was perfect in Silence of the Lambs, but even he himself now regrets making Red Dragon and Hannibal, as he's said in interviews. Honestly, I feel like I can't even remember any of his dialogue in either of those sequels. I just remember some of the flashier scenes, like Ray Liotta's head meal. Out of two entire sequels, I think the only scene that nears greatness of Silence of the Lambs is the opening of Red Dragon, where Hannibal Lecter attacks Ed Norton playing Will Graham and ends up getting manually arrowed. (laughs) And the way he crouches down over Will as he's bleeding out and Whisper talks to him, you're what a remarkable boy, and then tells him, I think I'll eat your heart. That's pretty great. Now, what you see with Anthony Perkins' performance throughout the Psycho movies can best be captured with how Bates Motel had to handle this. Freddie Highmore was I, I kind of scary in a few moments of that series, but most of the time when he did the actual killing, he was like schizophrenically realizing after the fact what he had done and being horrified or remorseful. The scariest character in Bates Motel by a mile is Vera Farmiga, who is doing the killings, you know, as mother. And even when she was alive, the way she was portraying that core psychosis that was getting passed along and mutating even further inside her son. This is similar to what happens in the original Psycho, though not exactly. But what Anthony Perkins does in the sequels is portray the Norman and the mother sides combined. He's essentially playing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde simultaneously. He's doing what it takes two actors to do in Bates Motel. And he's also showing what emotional toll that takes as he comes more and more apart over time. Not exactly coincidentally, this is kind of what Anthony Hopkins pulled off in the first Silence of the Lambs, where he was being charming and ruthless with almost no line in between. But most importantly, he's only on screen in silence for like 18 minutes of a more than two hour movie. And that effect does not last in the sequels. He basically has to play Lecter in the sequels as more of an outright monster. Would actually That actually diminishes the character. It doesn't make the character more interesting. Freddy Krueger, as played by Robert Englund in the Elm Street series, is also a fascinating case of this. Because at his best, which I would argue is through the first three movies, his words are also weapons. They're like an extra blade on his glove. Because it turns out it might be worse being killed by a dream demon who's darkly laughing in her ear and saying something morbidly sarcastic than just getting silently impaled by Michael Myers or like quickly machete decapitated by Jason. The words that Freddy says are an extra layer of cruelty. They're meant to scar you. This is probably inspired by his condition. (laughs) But as the Elm Street series went on, it became clear to me anyway that Freddy's words were meant more and more for the audience. They were becoming applause lines and definitely becoming more comedic and less terrifying. So don't get me wrong. I mean, Robert England was always amazing at pulling off what he was being asked to do. 
But what he was being asked to do was of less complexity, not more. It's like an athlete starting out with the Olympics and then moving on to the first round qualifiers. And Anthony Perkins movies might have gotten worse around him as the franchise went on. Although, as you'll see in a second, I'm going to fight really hard for Psycho 3. But he treated every second he was on the screen like he was that Olympic athlete in a gold medal event. And even if the quality of the scenes deteriorated a little bit, his performance never, ever did. So I'm going to jump chronology here and get to the one that I'm most excited to talk about, which is Psycho 3. Amazingly, this movie, it's 1986 with Psycho 3. This movie starts with a blood-curdling screaming of a phrase, there is no God, and then opens up to like a glorious homage to the movie Vertigo. There's a character we're introduced to named Maureen Coyle, whose initials MC are like Marion Crane from the original. So I swear to God, well, there is no God according to this movie. I swear that Maureen's character must have been an inspiration for the Corey character in Halloween Ends, since she basically has his backstory and his character arc. She's accidentally responsible for one of her fellow nuns falling to her death. So she leaves the nunnery and she starts hitchhiking. She meets one of the highlight characters of Psycho 3, Dwayne Duke, who was played by the same actor who played Lawnmower Man, of all things. He picks her up from her hitchhiking and they're both inevitably going to find their way to the Bates Motel. When we first get introduced or reintroduced to Norman Bates, which is, I think, 10-ish minutes into Psycho 3, we meet him poisoning birds so that he can stuff them. And he's using the same spoon that he's stuffing the dead birds with to have himself an occasional delicious peanut butter snack. So same old Norman. Next, we get a scene in which Norman is being interviewed by a journalist, Tracy, who is coming to town and just poking around like all Mulder and Scully style. And during this scene, which is in a restaurant, we get an incredible monologue from Norman that I think would just make a great audition piece if you were like trying out for a David Fincher movie in L.A. Because the monologue is so subtle and so interesting. Norman knows he's bad and he knows he's unfixable. He's not asking for that anymore to be fixed. He's just trying to maintain. And of course, just as we reach the end of this really good monologue, which is telling us that Perkins has somehow arrived through all these events at like a stable psychotic equilibrium. Maureen Coyle strolls into the restaurant looking almost exactly like Marion Crane from the past, carrying a suitcase with the initials MC on it. And we now know that poor Norman's new downward spiral is assured. Maureen, it turns out, is going to be just as awkward and guilt-ridden as Norman is, even if she's only one one-hundredth as crazy. And, and as they sort of pass each other, we get to go back to the Bates Motel, which now is all of a sudden full booked up by a horde of like football-loving teenagers in true high mid-80s style. And it's really kind of so refreshing to see 
that forbidding, isolated Bates Motel, like booked up and making money for Norman and having a bunch of people running around for once. And when you first watch this movie, it feels like when all these kids show up, it's going to go full 80s slasher and like dozens of teenagers are going to die in ridiculous ways. And there is death and there is blood, but it's pretty subversive and it's not going to play out exactly the way you think. And I, I should mention here that one of the reasons it's subversive is because this movie was directed by the person who knew Norman Bates best, Anthony Perkins himself in his directorial debut. And he's so smart and subtle about subverting the psycho myth that is built up over time. It's kind of the way Clint Eastwood subverted his characters and the Western myths in the movie Unforgiven. This is a gem moment in this franchise because Psycho 3 to me is the Elm Street 3 of this series. It's the dreamiest Psycho movie and the most surreal and the most ambitious in terms of the crazy things and visuals it's going to try to do. So it would be like randomly like Anthony Hopkins showing up and directing the best, second best Lecter franchise movie himself. So back in the movie, in an incredible turn of events, Maureen gets into the legendary psycho shower. And while she's there, Norman suits up his mother to go kill her. But when he breaks in, he finds that she's already tried to commit suicide and is floating in a bloody tub. It's a very clever twist on an old twist. And poor Maureen, bleeding out, looks up and sees Norman in his dress and hallucinates him as the Virgin Mary. And the visuals here are super chilling. It actually reminds me of like Exorcist 3, not just in the spookiness and like offness of the visuals, but also just philosophically, like in its kind of grim stance and take on religion. But in this scene, Norman saves a life instead of taking one, even though hilariously he has to share in Maureen's head the credit with Jesus' mom. But it's interesting how this happens because let's say Psycho and Silence of the Lambs, you're trying to figure out which one of the mo these movies is like better if that was possible, right? And I think just in terms of execution and acting and just all the elements that we know make up movies, they're almost on par. I mean, I would put Psycho a little ahead, but I wouldn't think it would be a crazy argument to say that Silence is just as good. The difference here is that Psycho has that one incredible kill the character midway moment, kind of like Stanley Kubrick tried to weakly echo this in The Shining with how he dispensed so quickly with Halloran's character after we spent so much time with him, the shock of that, right? But that kind of move is something that silence just isn't able to do because it comes so much further along. So to be able to take one of the core things that makes the Psycho franchise stand out and Anthony Perkins as director to find a way to give it freshness again is just magic. So after Maureen is saved, Norman and Maureen basically start to date and kind of like enact that internet meme of I can fix her or I can fix him to, for each other. 
And while that's happening, apparently Dwayne Duke, my, my favorite like side character, is like living in his own separate David Lynch movie. We get a, a scene with him in a hotel room that's like so weirdly lit. He's manipulating lamps to hide his nakedness. The, the walls of the room are just covered in porn. He's in a different movie. It's a truly bizarre scene. And then, because people have started to go missing, the sheriff shows up to investigate. And he's just about as good at sheriffing as you'd imagine a sheriff who has the Bates Motel in his jurisdiction for years and years and years, but still thinks Norman Bates is innocent, would be. And then we get the highlight scene of the whole movie for most people. Although I... Do you think there's one better moment and definitely one moment of mine that's more favorite? But in in the standout scene for most, it's where the sheriff is interrogating Norman outside the motel. And he's like reaching into this ice machine and slowly pulling out ice cubes and like munching on them because it's hot. And what he can't see is that the body of the missing person he's looking for is dead and in the ice machine and turning the ice cubes red and watching this guy just trying to figure out the mystery and interrogating characters while we reaching into this machine and just munching on bloody cubes is the absolute best comedy moment. I mean, black comedy, the blackest comedy for sure, but still hilarious. And when Norman goes back into the machine to retrieve the body later, it truly looks eerie and creepy. It's very unsettling. So after the sheriff leaves, Norman discovers that Duke has stolen his mother's corpse and he's basically holding it hostage, weirdly. Um, and he, his intention is to blackmail Norman. So, of course, Norman goes all psycho on him and kills him. In an incredible scene, just basically hitting him with pretty much every object you could find in a hotel room, like a phone and like an ashtray. And I was like, I, I can't even remember all the stuff he basically hits him with. But most amazingly, the last thing he hits him with is an acoustic guitar that makes these like jangly, discordant sounds as it's striking Duke's head over and over. And I'm telling you, the image of Norman with his disturbed, murderous expression, along with the sound of like this gentle acoustic guitar instrument going wildly out of tune is as good or better as any metaphor from American Psycho or Seven. And there's another great moment here where Norman is yelling and now the seemingly dead Duke on the ground and he. He knows that Duke was going to tell everyone about Mother. And he he tells him, no one must know. And he spits it out. He goes like, no one must know about Mother. And he spits this line out with such ferocity and venom that it's one of the few times in the whole franchise where you see Norman's mask fully slip. But while he's staying Norman and not turning into his mother, it's a great moment. Norman goes to deposit Duke in the swamp where he's been putting bodies the whole time we've known him. And Duke in the car on the way to the swamp suddenly revives for a second. He's not dead. And he attacks Norman from behind and they drive into the swamp in the car. 
And it's super interesting that Norman is inserted into like the corpse reservoir that he has created. It's a really haunting moment. It's got a very night of the hunter feel. And then just because this movie is great scene after great scene, we get this great sequence next where Norman returns to the motel and Maureen, who's about to die on the famous Bates Motel stairs, but because it's a great touch, she's at the top of the stairs holding Norman's hands. And Norman suddenly hears his mother's voice uh, through the door, and it startles him. And he either gently pushes or just lets go of Maureen. And she comes down to the stairs in a visual that's very similar to the way that uh, I think his name is Arbogast dies in the original. And she gets at the bottom of the stairs impaled by the arrow of a Cupid statue. Now, this would be an almost too on the nose metaphor if you were writing it from scratch. But the incredible thing is, go back and look at the Psycho movies. This Cupid statue has been sitting at the bottom of the stairs the whole time. It's in the original. It's in two. I mean, this statue with its deadly about to be impaling arrow has been lurking down there waiting for its moment to be like an ironic death instrument since 1960. Just incredible. But this brings me to one of my favorite moments in any horror movie ever. The journalist Tracy returns to explore the motel because she thinks Norman is gone. And she discovers Maureen dead and laid out in typical Norman fashion, like preserved in death. But this time preserved beautifully, or beautifully arranged like and prone, not sitting up. Like the courses that he leaves sitting up are just sitting there waiting to be activated. They're waiting to be heard. But Maureen is laid out on like an altar to, to kind of be worshipped, which is an inevitable full circle of Maureen's like religious journey in this movie. And while Tracy's attention is drawn to this morbid, but gorgeous display, Norman dressed up as mother sneaks up behind her. And when she turns to face him, it is one of the scariest visuals in all of eighties horror, but that's not even my favorite moment. Because after she sees that, she runs. She's trying to escape. She's running through the motel. Norman's chasing her. And she's like, turn to talk to him and talk him out of this, like talk him down out of the craziness because she's been investigating this. So she sort of knows what's making Norman tick at this point. So instead of just blindly running, she's like backing up the staircase that has now claimed many lives. And she's sliding along the wall and she's talking to Norman and telling him, you know, you're not your mother. And as she's backing her way up the stairs, she knocks one of the paintings on the wall askew. And as Norman relentlessly stalks up the stairs afterwards, he takes a moment to reach out and straighten the painting she knocked crooked back perfectly. But he does it with such skill and ease without even slowing down his climb or diverting his murderous gaze from his prey. It just shows in this one action that he isn't just Norman. He isn't just mother. 
He's also a good son, a good business owner, a good caretaker, completely OCD, and a completely unhinged serial killer, all bundled into and captured in one magnificent gesture. This is a person who is always on the edge of flying completely apart, but he's keeping things together outwardly. It is a magnificent touch. So Norman internally fights down the urge to kill the journalist, Tracy, and he turns his rage on the corpse of his mother. You, you know, they say you can't improve on a great director like Hitchcock, but interestingly, in both the first and second Psycho movies, Norman has no agency at the end of either of those movies. There are characters or police officers intervening, intervening in the last moments. In Psycho 3, no one's there to intervene. It's Norman, the corpse of mother, and the journalist. And just in this triangle of people, Norman takes his fate into his own hands and attempts to take the one thing it turns out he's been really good at the whole time, which is slashing, and direct it at his real nemesis, which is his mother. I mean, it might not be a better movie ending in terms of movies than the original Psycho, but it's better for the evolution of the character. He finally has agency against the thing that's killing him. And then we get the last shot of this movie, which I wish was the last shot of the franchise, honestly, because it's perfect. It's Norman riding away in the back of a police car, stroking the disembodied hand of his mother's corpse that he snuck in under his coat. And he's looking directly into the camera. And again, unlike with Hitchcock, who at the end of Psycho had to use a voiceover to tell us what Norman was thinking and feeling, Anthony Perkins went braver. As an actor and director, he gave no dialogue here or voiceover. He just had to rely completely on his facial expressions. And he gives this half smile and there's no sound and looks right into the camera. And you you know, you know what all of this meant from that one look. I'm just asking you to go back and look at that final shot, that final moment, and tell me that he didn't crush it in a way that few actors or maybe no actors ever could. Now, I know I prefer Psycho 3 to Psycho 2, but most horror fans and probably critics disagree with me and think that the sequel is the better movie. Although, interestingly, when I was looking up reviews for Psycho 3, I found an incredible argument between Siskel and Ebert, of all people, who were pretty hard on horror movies, especially in like the late 80s period. And Ebert was strong on defense of how good a movie Psycho 3 was. Siskel hated it, of course. Of course, but I think Ebert was pretty insightful in his review on what's great about Psycho 3. And I think he was frankly surprised that someone directing their first movie could do all the things that Anthony Perkins did. But Psycho 2 is a really good movie. It's part of Anthony Perkins' acting legacy. It has great turns by Meg Tilly and of all people, Dennis Franz. And an absolutely legendary closing scene that I've never been able to get out of my mind once I've seen it. 
And Psycho for the beginning is also probably a little better than you remember it if you saw it a long time ago. And again, it's Anthony Perkins adding another layer to the character of Norman this time, because in this version, Norman is completely on the other side of madness. And there's also a pretty terrifying performance in Psycho 4 from Olivia Hussey as Norma Bates. But besides Psycho 3 and the original, my other franchise favorite is the series Bates Motel, where despite a, a really just nuanced and cool and interesting performance by Freddie Highmore and some really good performances by other actors like the one who plays Dylan. The entire show is just straight out stolen by Vera Farmiga as Norma Bates, both dead and alive. She is completely terrifying, fully committed, quick and unhesitating when she's in killer mother mode and very, very sympathetic and charming and when not. And she has like, in the dead hallucination version of her with her son, she has some of the most down-to-earth parent-to-child conversations I've ever heard in a series, which is super weird and twisted when you think about it, that they're being at points more honest with each other than is ever portrayed on TV by the likes of, of living <laughs> mother and child or parent and child situations. But at the bottom of it, she is terrifying. Uh, I'm, I'm like more terrified of her character in Bates Motel than I'd be of like the minor in Muddy, My Bloody Valentine or Leatherface even, who you can really just escape if you get catch the right pickup truck going by. But with Norma, you're just not going to see it coming until it's too late. And just for a little spice, just for the contrast, as Elvis Costello would have said, Blood and Chocolate is a weirdly great combination. This franchise also has one of the worst movies ever made, which is Gus Van Sant's incredibly misguided remake of Psycho. And in true Psycho fashion, there is a twist <laughs> to this, which is you would think if you were making a movie that was a remake of something that had come before, you'd be doing it because you had like fresh ideas to add to it. But the Gus Van Sant version is actually pretty good in parts where it's sticking exactly to just doing a color version of what Hitchcock did and really falls the hell apart anytime it tries to add anything new at all, which are all just stupid additions. And if that's not the twist, the twist is, can you believe I got anyone to agree to make this with me? So... I felt like we just had to revisit this topic. Thank you, Sophie, for pointing it out. Um, amazing. And to everyone, again, who commented and voted, because this is how the podcast works. These interesting things happen from what you, the community, bring to us by messaging us through the page on Facebook or Instagram at Horror Weekly um, or by whatever means you reach out. Um, we have an email to uh, horrorweeklycast at gmail.com. But the point is, thank you to everyone who did it. It was an amazing thing to realize that when I went through the comments that that we were talking um, way more about Wolf Cop and Demonic Toys and Wishmaster than Psycho, which, uh, as you could probably tell from my enthusiasm, I just think deserves to be thought of more as one of horror's very, very interesting 
really underrated and really rich franchises. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been doing a segment called The Best Horror Movie I Watched This Week. But I can't do that for you because I didn't see any other horror movies this week besides Psycho 3, which was amazing, and one other, which was terrible. So I guess we're going to turn this one into the worst horror movie I saw this week, which was the 2015 Poltergeist remake. So I had mentioned in a post on the Horror Weekly Facebook page that I thought this was the worst movie ever made in the history of cinema. And there was a little bit of pushback from people in the comments saying that, sure, it wasn't great, but like Sam Rockwell's awesome and maybe that's a little excessive. And it had been a long time since I saw it, so I went back to rewatch it. And yeah, I mean, it's it's the worst. It's just... I, just from the fact that it had this misguided belief that it could James Wanify the poltergeist thing. I mean, this has got to be proof that just you got to stay true to your voice or your vision and not mix them. <laughs> like poltergeist is a Toby Hooper, Steven Spielberg thing. It just doesn't go in the conjuring insidious universe it doesn't belong there and sam rockwell is great but all he's basically doing is looking bummed and then reacting to jump scares and just all the decisions in this damn movie are wrong i mean you could just sum it up from the end joke right the end joke of the original poltergeist is so good the rolling the tv out of the hotel room onto the balcony is like a perfect visual fun pun and kind of meaningful in a weird way at the same time. But you, even though you're outside the hotel room and the family's inside by what they did and you being like, Oh, I would have done exactly that same thing in their shoes. You're really in that room with the family. Like you've joined that family by the end of that movie. In contrast, the end joke of Poltergeist 2015 is like the family randomly house shopping at, at like Amityville squares or something with the creepiest suburban house imaginable with this bubbly real estate agent talking them through the thing. And she tells them that there's this amazing ancient tree outside that's looming <laughs> like like they they literally helicoptered it out of Jurassic Park and planted it in the ground and here it's just looming over the house like Nosferatu and when the camera turns back the family's gone and they're like driving down the street smiling like aha they can't trick us and put us in a <laughs> this creepy suburban house with its creepy ancient at tree they're not going to get us again it's the dumbest thing imaginable. This movie tried to give us like shots from inside the limbo land where the first poltergeist rightfully kept that mostly mysterious. But no, let's, let's show everything. We're better than those people that made that. So they're going to give us the inside thing like um, like the insidious mystery mythological universe or whatever. Just tragically terrible. The clown is awful. The reasoning of the movie is bad. They're like, oh, let's 
let's not call the police. They'll never believe us. Never believe you. <laughs> like this poltergeist isn't hiding. It's basically like a like a constant paranormal cyclone inside the house. You there's you could call you can call anybody. You could call whoever the biggest skeptic out there. Like me, message us, comment. Uh, on the page, if you don't believe in anything, like if you're just out there and you're like, I don't believe in ghosts, I don't believe in religion, I don't believe in anything, I have no beliefs, I, I don't believe what the government tells me, I got no beliefs. You're the biggest skeptic in the world. If I if I take you over to the two Poltergeist 2015 house and just walk you into it, you're going to believe. Just an awful, awful film to me. Um, I'd love to hear a good defense of it if there is one. But um, for now, until someone convinces me, this is the biggest blight on horror cinema (laughs) of the 2010s. So I apologize that I didn't have a best horror movie that I watched this week. Besides Psycho 3, which go see that. The first 30 seconds of that are better than anything that happened in Poltergeist. We had a few... um, iTunes and Spotify reviews trickle in since last week's episode. Truly appreciate it. I know you're thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm not driving, I'm walking, I'm hiking, I'm, you know, <laughs> flying in the night because I'm a vampire. Um, I don't, I, I'm not going to remember to give this uh, podcast a review. But if you liked what you heard, um, I know it sounds crazy because you're like, I'm never going to do this. But in the spirit of the episode, we all go mad sometimes. So if you have an insane moment and liked what you heard and want to give a uh, rating and whatever platform you're listening, couldn't appreciate it more. And that's it. Until next week, have a great horror week. Mm-hmm.